I'm Andy Murphy, and this is the Toasted Sister Podcast, radio about Native American food. episode 28 and before I get into it I'd like to let you know about how you can support this podcast. The easiest way is to share these episodes with your friends and family and rate and write a review on iTunes that lets more people learn about this podcast. You can also go to ToastedSisterPodcast.com to donate any amount or buy a cool Toasted Sister tumbler. On February 17th, I attended the 2018 New Mexico Organic Farming Conference here in Albuquerque, and that's because I heard there would be a bunch of native farmers there. There were, and I talked with a few of them about their projects and how culture and traditional knowledge plays a role in how they feed themselves and their communities. Here's Bettina Sandoval. She's a cultural education specialist at the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center, and she's from Taos Pueblo. I asked her about the resilience garden at the center. It tells our story, both our history and kind of the Pueblo agriculture developments, I guess. Um, So there's four parts to our garden. The first part talks about um, gathering, foraging. Um, It has a lot of those kind of, you know, berries, um, like the choke cherries, the plums, currants. Um, the focus is on things that are pre-contact um, when before the Spanish came. And so um, we have a lot of those plants, but we also incorporated, um, you know, raspberries, blackberries, strawberries, things like that, because that's a part of our story now. <laughs> um, and we also plant um, cotton in there, too. We use those plants to really talk about that, that first period, you know. We were foragers, we were nomadic, you know, at some point. Uh, we didn't stay in, you know, the same dwelling every, you know, all day, every day. Until places like Mesa Verde or, you know, Chaco Canyon came up, those were more permanent dwellings, right? And we did a lot of agriculture, you know, during that time. But of course, if, you know, there was a drought or if the food that we saved that year um, didn't sustain our whole community, then some of us had to leave. You know, so there was a lot of um, periods in there where we were like semi-permanent, you know, but um, the foraging, you know, that's something that also sustained us. And um, it's a big part of who we are still today um, because, you know, the Pueblos were never relocated. So we know, you know, everything around us and, um, you know, especially in Taos. We have a lot of plants that we know exactly where they grow, and we go there and um, harvest them, you know, every year. They're used for cultural activities, but also just to sustain us, you know, things like mushrooms and celery and mint and like a whole, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, So that, you know, that's a really big part of of who we are. And then the second part of the garden is um, the waffle gardens. So we talk about rain storage and um, like kind of conserving water and things like that because in a place where there's no permanent water you really have to make the most out of the rain that comes down. The waffle gardens basically collect rain in the indented area and that's where the seeds grow and so it, it um, concentrates the water at the seeds and at the roots of the plant and that's kind of a, 
um, mainly a Zuni. You know, they, um, uh, so Zuni Pueblo is kind of the one that came up with the idea of the Waffle Gardens. And, you know, where they're located, they're way out west. Um, there's not a whole lot of water out there. Um, so, you know, it makes sense that they had to be a little bit more, you know, imaginative and, you know, innovative, I guess, more so, and um, kind of use that water. Um, <clears throat> and then the third part of the garden is about um, us settling near permanent water sources. So um, that's when we got, you know, permanent irrigation. We created extensive, you know, irrigation canals and systems throughout our pueblos. And, you know, every family who farms uses those, you know, um, canals that come through their uh, fields. Of course, you know, that changed our techniques. So instead of using either floodwaters from rain runoff or rain itself, where, um, you know, we have constant access to water for the most part. So we developed things like, you know, the rose, you know, um, the typical kind of row gardening. People still use flooding still, you know, with the permanent irrigation, you can flood your field and it depends on what kind of, you know, seeds you have. Um, you know, you couldn't do flooding with some of the varieties today because they're not used to that kind of watering. So, um, you know, they'll probably die because there's too much water, you know. But it's, um, you know, it's interesting how we've adapted to kind of that permanent source of water. And that was like the whole reason for us moving around, you know. There's questions about, you know, why didn't you establish permanent dwellings, you know, a long, long time ago? You know, we'll never really know that answer, right? Um, but we can kind of think about the times. And there was a lot of raiding going on, especially during droughts. And everybody was, you know, taking constant trips to the rivers and, you know, things like that. And so it's kind of, um, you know, you're kind of more vulnerable, I guess, you know. And and I would I would think that, you know, with all these um, nomadic tribes also coming to the river for water and things like that, um, you know, they would, they would definitely, well, they're right there, you know, let's raid or, you know, whatever. Um, I just, you know, that's what I think about. And I'm not sure if that's true or, <laughs> you know, I don't really know, but that's what I think about is kind of that vulnerability um, being next to the water where everybody comes to. It's kind of like all the groups in New Mexico or in the Southwest established, you know, um, rules or, you know, peace treaties kind of thing, you know eventually you know we built our pueblos and we had the resources and the people to keep it safe and they say you know like in taos um that our wall was you know huge it was like 20 feet tall and you know that makes a lot of sense because we were you know scared of raiding and all that kind of stuff and that's something that people ask us a lot <laughs> that's uh raiding from my tribe right now yeah <laughs> yeah and apache <laughs> right. um uh one thing i notice about the relationship between navajos and pueblos is um sometimes it's not there i remember going uh to school at nmsu and the navajo kids and the pueblo kids kind of hung out separately um they even formed their own different volleyball team um i don't know why that was <laughs> can you can you explain uh, is that from back then that sort of uh, enemy tribes you know is that is that the history now I so I hear yes <laughs> <laughs> okay. I hear that it kind of stems from you know that that you guys Old were brunch. our main enemies you know <laughs> and and we used to raid each other a lot and I mean um you know it's it's a weird thing but we grow up with that you know stigma and we it's like, oh, you're Navajo, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you Pueblos, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, 
So the, the garden is here in Albuquerque. Can you tell um, the audience, the listening audience, um, if they were interested in coming here, what, what's, uh, what's the details? So um, when you visit the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center, we have our museum inside, and they can tell you where the garden's located. Um, but it's on the north end of our property. And so it's open to anybody. Um, we don't charge for you to walk through the garden. <clears throat> and we have our four areas. We have um, signs out there, and there's a path as well. So um, we just want people to go through and learn about our story. And, you know, right now we don't have anything planted in there yet. <laughs> it's still winter time, but um, we're definitely going to have, you know, the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. Um, we're definitely planning on doing some, you know, modern veggies and greens, um, a lot of... Um, our pre-contact stuff you know we're trying to get it going again and we had a lot of raspberries last year um, so we're you know we're really excited for this year and if you're here during the summer definitely come and and check out the garden. <laughs> I met with some young Navajo farmers from Arizona their names are Nicholas Ashley and Shannon James. <laughs> She Nicholas Ashley Dashajine from Zones Ranch, New Mexico, but currently living in Big Mountain, Tessensaw region. Yeah, it's a She Shannon James and She Chishinishland or Torek Ojibashishin, Kizislan and Dashiche, Ado Tabaha, Dashinale, Ado Ledislinsade, Nasha. So, can you tell me about your work in agriculture and your side of the res? I've been recently getting into the agri- agriculture side within the last couple of years is planting corn and squash and beans and, and things like that. The harvest wasn't too good last year, but um, that's because there, there was just hardly any snowfall. And when the rains came, it just, it came and went pretty much in a, in a pretty big flood. But I've been also doing outreach and a lot of projects with young youth within, within our, our Diné nation. When I was working with a different organization, and actually went to these preschools and taught some little preschool students how to plant um, flowers, which was just like a, uh, you know, a first step into the direction of of growing food and giving that self-empowerment and that self-determination to to continue these these life ways that our, you know, our traditional ancestors have always uh, a part of. And you, Shannon, I see you uh, nodding your head. What's your part in all of this? Um, Yeah, so just recently we actually uh, took it upon ourselves to actually uh, create our own field because we used to share it with the elders and help them out and hoe their weeds and stuff. But this time, um, this past recent um, summer, we actually created our own field, got our own fencing, put everything in. And um, so we share about an acre field, me and um, Nick's family here. He has a small family. Like he was saying, you know, it didn't do too good this year because um, that plot we're on, it hasn't been worked in years. So the soil, you know, it's it's not as its prime condition. But as slowly as we start working it and letting the old crops um, go back into the ground and provide the nitrogen again and the other nutrients, um, I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll get our soil back to um, good content. Yeah, I'm really excited for this year. Um, I have quite a few seeds that I've been collecting from different um, regions, not just from ours, and different varieties of corns and um, melons. I really like melons, so I've been trying to <laughs> really keep my eyes out for the melons. So, yeah, I'm really excited for this year. What did we plant this year? We planted white corn. Uh, we planted um, 
a few melons they unfortunately didn't make it and a few squashes which did not make it as well but we planted white corn and blue corn and we had a pretty small yield it wasn't too significant but it was something what's it like when um i know you said you had a, a small yield but um being able to eat you know maybe that little melon or that one little cob of corn i mean what's it like to finally um get to do that yeah, no, it was really cool because that was the first time I've ever harvested corn that I'm pretty sure I put in the ground myself. And is is really weird because, like, once you put in a lot of that work of hoeing, which was, like, back-breaking job on a one-acre field, and I've harvested, uh, got about, a, probably about five heads of corn. What did we make with it? We made, um... Kneel down bread? Kneel down bread. We made kneel down bread. You know, there wasn't, and then I saved probably about two kernels, enough for seed next year, so they're not going to be eaten, so. All right, and um, Nicholas, uh, you you guys are young yourselves. Uh, where, where are you um, acquiring some of this knowledge? Is it from your families, or you reaching out into um, the elders in the, in the bigger uh, community? Yeah, mainly community outreach. Um, a lot of the practicing te- uh, to techniques I've learned, yeah, from the elders. You know how they say when you when you're planting the corn, you got to do it with you know with respect, and you got to do it with some kind of prayer in your head. Whether you know, but as long as you're putting that effort to to say those things and to put it in the ground, it's it makes it more special that way. And they were using um, traditional planting sticks as well, and just just learning these these like old ways. It's more important than trying to you know, capitalize off off of your own food. What I'm trying to say is that it's supposed to be teach you self self resiliency, and self reliance and self empowerment. That's what it's all about. I've also learned from my from different organizations that have helped me learn how to plant corn, how to harvest seeds, how to compost, how to uh, um, how to get fields ready, how to put up fencing, you know, how to use the right type of materials to build fencing. The, my vision is to have every community have at least a farm and have at least something to go to, you know, when, when we can't have stores anymore. At least in Crown Point, uh, my parents have been trying to uh, do a little bit of backyard gardening, and um, it's just, this is maybe like the fourth year, and there's just nothing coming out of it, and it's just that uh, the, the health of the soil is just it's not there. The, the soil is not healthy and we've tried a couple of different things. Um, and it's, uh, it's frustrating to a point where I kind of don't think they're going to try to grow this year because they spent so much money and so much water in the last four years. How do you uh, talk to people about that frustration and what kind of frustrations are you hearing from the people when um, you know, they are trying to grow these gardens or trying to help with your cause or you're trying to learn from them? I mean, how do, you, how do you deal with that sort of frustration going both ways? Hmm. <clears throat> I could definitely relate to that because uh, I'm pretty fond of trees as well, you know, cottonwoods and different willows and fruit trees as well. I've had the same experience, you know, um, I've, I've attempted to grow things and, you know, didn't succeed a few times. And sometimes, you know, it can be demoralizing on you as a grower or a farmer if you want to, like, you know maybe you're not good enough or you know you don't have what they call like a green thumb or something or but there's a lot of different factors into it like you said soil and then maybe your your seed viability maybe you didn't get a good batch of seeds or they're not as viable as they used to be but um I don't know I would when I think about it I I think about my grandma because like she's she's pretty successful farmer she's been 
growing melons and squashes pretty successful, which I think are a little take a little more attention and maybe skill compared to some of our corn because they're a little more drought tolerant. So they'll, you know, they'll they'll tough it out. But some of these other ones, you have to put a little bit extra attention and care. You put a little too much pressure on yourself and you just overthink it. I think is what's happening to me. Um, you know, I'm thinking about too many factors and not trying to keep it simple. I mean, it's never stopped me from trying, though. Like, I always want to try new methods and stuff. And, uh, Nicholas, do you want to add on to that, the frustrations of, uh, of, uh, of farming and not, uh, you know, being able to, to grow and eat something that comes out of the, uh, your efforts? Mm-hmm. With that, like Shannon said, you know, just never give up. You know, once you, once you say you're going to do it, you know, you have to do it. And then just try whatever, try whatever it takes to, to make your, your life grow. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. You know, maybe if your soil is not too good, maybe you can start composting. And composting is a really good uh, method to have really, to have really healthy soil. And all it is is just, you know, taking the scraps of what you don't eat, even cardboard and things like that, compostable, biodegradable things that you can mix into the soil or you have a compost pit, you know, that'll, that'll help it. Uh, grow even more your your seeds and your and your and your stuff like that and of course water is always the main issue you know right now we're suffering from one of the worst droughts that we've ever seen that makes it hard enough it makes it kind of makes you lose hope at sometimes you know sometimes there's you know it's that it's that integrity that we have as Dinette people to just keep going and to just to keep keep trying and and find out ways to divert water to harvest water as well there's water catchment systems, there's, you know, building gabions and building these type of structures, you know, within our tributaries and our washes that we can, you know, essentially help save water. And in even planting indigenous seeds, grasses, uh, flowers, things like that, you know, that will hold the moisture on the land. And that's, that's what, you know, that's where land stewardship comes in. But the thing is, you know, it's, it's just to have that hope and just to keep trying and don't be so frustrated. <laughs> I also met with James Skeet. He's a Navajo farmer from northern New Mexico, and his farm is called Covenant Pathways, and it's part of the Environment Celebration Institution. We started the last three years. We, we quit our jobs, and we decided to go into farming based on some, some trainings that we went or came across, and that was having to do with the biology and the soil and life in the soil. And from that, uh, we have not looked back. We've been moving forward to really looking at the biological aspect of the soil and how I think as Native people, we, we trust so much of our seeds, but you know, what, what, where do we plant the seeds? Where do we embed the seeds in? Where are you farming at? We are just south of Gallup. Uh, we have a place called Spirit Farm. Uh, it's in between Zuni and Gallup. It's high elevation, part of the Colorado Plateau before it, it pops down into Zuni. We have been, uh, we have a hoop house. We have uh, livestock around there and um, we have uh, different things that we've, we've attempted to do and grow that has never really been grown in that whole area. Um, that that area up there, I've been through there a couple of times, um, going to Zuni, but it's very uh, foresty. There there are a lot of uh, trees and um, um, uh, it's, you said higher elevation. Um, is it a, like a place that you cleared out, especially for farming? No, uh, it's actually the area where we we um, started growing a lot of things is an area that was really um, 
heavily plowed, heavily used. A lot of compaction took place. Um, it was actually the part of the CCP to clear land. Um, so what happened was my grandpa started growing a lot of uh, the three the three elements of our stable, uh, stable uh, um, produce. Uh, the, they call them the three sisters, the beans, squash, uh, corn. Um, but it was it was plowed uh, and it was cleared. And it, because of that, I think what's created is really some really bad soil. And then uh, years later, because it was just dormant, uh, wild horses came in there and really chewed up a lot of the native grasses. So it's it's really compacted. It's it's really terrible land to grow anything. But in just about a three three year time period, after we learned how to how to do composting and amend the soil, is that when things began to change and we see new birds coming back that we haven't seen for a while. We're using a lot of the, the, the manure for the composting, amending the land. We're seeing grasses come back. We're seeing plants that, that have never really been grown in that area start growing. And, and uh, it's really been beneficial to, to change and amend the soil and turn things around. And so you're mentioning soil a couple of times. You're a, you're a soil nerd here. Um, what, uh, what's one of the first things you misunderstood about soil and eventually, you know, understood about soil? Well, a couple things. Um, one of them is that we have exposed soil to the UV rays. We've, um, it cannot hold water anymore because we don't have the carbon in the soil. Uh, there's a lot of compaction that goes on from the heavy downpours uh, along with the overgrazing. So it doesn't have the grasses, it doesn't have the carbon or, or you know, the brown stuff able to retain the soil. Now if you amend the soil with either straw or wood chips or any kind of carbon in there, old weeds that you can cut down or mow down, what it does is it retains 75% of the moisture in the soil and it creates uh, the whole biology that helps it uh, kind of retain retain moisture for the roots and the plants. I'm using this uh, example a couple of times in this uh, episode here, but uh, uh, my my parents have um, been struggling to uh, get their soil healthy just in their backyards, and they live in Crown Point area. Um, what, what's one of what's a, a, maybe some advice you would give to backyard um, enthusiasts who you know they get excited about growing their own food and and growing healthy food, but then you know once once that you know harvest time comes around, it's not there. They see these little seedlings die. I mean, what, what's uh, some advice you would give to uh, backyard growers uh, about soil? Well, there's a couple things that you can look at, and that's a really good question because. Um, I would suggest for, for um, backyard uh, growers to really look at putting a lot of carbon in there, brown stuff. It can be straw, wood chips, uh, and then uh, putting, putting um, like table scraps, coffee grinds, different things like that to get the biology. Because what, what, what you want to do is amend the soil so it not, not only capture, it, it has uh, enough air pockets in there for the soil to breathe and for the water to be captured in those air pockets. The other thing too is that um, we have been uh, doing a lot of classes. We have a Hogan, it's a community center. People can come. Uh, we have a, uh, uh, classes that are going on on 101 biology, composting, uh, what, what that means, how you can put uh, the biology back into your soil, uh, how to test the soil to see what kind of 
um, uh, microbes are in there, the, the biology in it. So what we're dealing with is uh, two dimension. One is the soil is very al alkaline. It's got a lot of minerals in it, but there's not enough biology in there to break down those minerals where it's usable for the roots and plants. That's why a lot of roots and plants die. The other thing is our waters are really bad. Uh, it's got a lot, it's a very heavy mineral. So what you can do is use the same biology uh, to amend, amend the water before you pour it on there. So we, we show a lot of people the, the different techniques on how to learn, how, how to get a compost going, uh, how, to, how to look at, you know, table scraps. Um, we even have classes on dehydration. We have classes on preserving foods once you get the produce going. We have uh, classes on, on how to protect uh, the garden that you started because there's always going to be either elk or deer or dogs come in. So how do you protect those? Uh, we, we have classes on sequestering water off the roofs because water is the most natural and, and neutral of all the water for your plants. So, uh, you know, how to get rain barrels going and, and, and how, to, how to get water so that it's readily available for your garden. I hear a lot of table scraps for your compost. Is there something that uh, maybe a table scrap that maybe you shouldn't put in your compost? I mean, I'm thinking like um, mustard. I mean, can you just like pour a bunch of mustard in your compost? I mean, what's one thing you wouldn't put in that pile? Well, it all depends on, on, on the biology in the pile itself. And I think if you have really good biology, uh, it can break that down. Uh, we work with... Uh, um, Dr. Elaine Ingham on the biology, and uh, we've been, my wife has gone through a lot of the training on the soil, and in that training, what we're looking at is how you can use the, the, the bacteria and the biology, the nematodes, the fungi, to break down a lot of these things that, that you know, come out of our, our table scraps, and it's all, it's all organic, it's all, you know, things that can, can break down. We've gotten to the point, even the discussion on how to neutralize your uranium, how to neutralize contaminated lands with, with the right biology to, to neutralize it. And, and what she was saying was in you know, probably about a year's time, if you have the right biology, the right fungi in there, you can actually neutralize uh, uh, radiated lands. We have not, as a tribe, looked at some of those things. And, and so I think really the, the, the whole perspective of what we have is, is really teaching Native people how to access the biology. We're hoping to get some um, puppet shows, uh, you know, coloring books that we can use to teach the younger people and, and the people in general to what those bugs mean. We have a linguist that's coming on board with us that's defining a lot, re renaming some of those in Navajo, some of those bugs, the nematodes, the bugs, the fungi, all that stuff so that they can incorporate. And what we try to do is use a lot of things that are local what's happening in, in the soil itself, what's happening around our environment, to take some of that um, carbon or wood leaves or wood chips and, and incorporate that into, into the composting or in the soil so that people don't have to go way out to, 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 to try to bring things in. And last I met with Akimi Martinez. She's the FVRX coordinator for the Community Outreach and Patient Empowerment Program. She's not a farmer, but her program focuses on getting healthy food to Navajo people who need it most. Um, can you tell me about COPE? What is that program about on the Navajo Nation? 
Yeah, definitely. COPE is a native-run nonprofit that is operating in Gallup, New Mexico, and it has been in existence since 2009. And we work with a lot of um, community partners on Navajo Nation. So it ranges from the Fresh Fruits and Vegetable Prescription Program, which I work for. We also have a Healthy Navajo Store Initiative. We have a cancer program. Um, we have a training and outreach program, which works directly with a community health representatives, which are on the Navajo Nation um, themselves. So they work specifically in helping to train uh, CHRs in different health modules. Um, so we do a, a, a pretty big range of um, support to the Navajo Nation. The fresh fruits prescription? I mean, what, what is that like? Is that um, providing uh, fruits and vegetables to people? The Fresh Fruits and Prescription Program is um, a, a direct c collaboration with IHS and 638 sites on Navajo Nation. So um, oftentimes we're approached by clinicians at different facilities who are interested in facilitating the FERX program or Fresh Fruits and Vegetable Prescription Program. Um, so an example would be that if a clinician from either IHS or 638 is interested in having that program at their facility, they would reach out to us and then we would then go through a process of introducing them to what FERX is, but it also involves an element of interprofessional teamwork. So um, let's say we have a clinician from the pediatrics department who is interested in having the program. They would then have to get uh, get interest from their department or even from other departments like internal medicine, OBGYN, public health nursing, or what have you, to kind of create an interprofessional teamwork. So it would be a handful of people who are interested in implementing the program. More often than not, these clinicians are using their own time um, to facilitate the program after being trained in um, the program deliverables. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later down uh, the line, but um, that's usually how programs get started. We don't we don't necessarily go into communities and dictating that they have the fresh fruits and uh, prescription program, we would really like the community to have that interest, to want to have that program in their community. So um, that's how it's been working so far. And how do you work with uh, grocery stores or um, the places where people do get their uh, groceries? Um, so a part of the Fresh Fruits and Prescription program is that um, the enrollees are given a prescription and along with their prescription, they're given vouchers. And so these vouchers um, are then able to be redeemed at what we call FERX retailers. However, we do work in collaboration with the Healthy Navajo Store Initiative through COPE as well. Um, so my coworker, her name is Donya Carroll. She works um, specifically in helping stores become healthier. And so uh, we do do an element of training cashiers and store management about what the program is and how uh, participants can, if the store does accept, like they would be able to redeem vouchers there. There's a redemption process that occurs after uh, vouchers are turned into the stores. The stores then invoice COPE and then we reimburse the stores for the number of vouchers that they received in a certain month or time period. So along with um, any type of food assistance program, we do have restrictions on what type of fruits and vegetables we consider acceptable. Um, we really like to stay as organic or as natural as possible. We don't like to add any sugar or additives or any type of of um, essentially 
processed food. So um, right now it is really on fresh fruits and vegetables. And then also that includes frozen fruits um, that don't have added sugar. And then we are also incorporating traditional foods. So we do encourage these different retailers to um, up their availability of traditional foods so that includes like sumac berries blue cornmeal um beans and we've recently just added like fresh herbs to the list however we are in talks to increase that list that we have for traditional foods is there a cooking element to all of this are you teaching people how to um cook a lot of these ingredients because um you know that, that that's also how i uh, envision this issue of healthy eating is uh you know maybe that lack of knowledge and how to use all of these different kinds of ingredients Definitely, that's a great question. So a part of the structure of FERX, um, like I had mentioned before, clinicians are the ones who are facilitating the program in their community at their site, whether it's IHS or 638. So a part of the program implementation is um, taking on that role of facilitating the education sessions. So for FERX, it's a six month um, cycle um, where education sessions are once a month and at the education sessions, enroll attend um, the education sessions where they receive their prescription for fresh fruits and vegetables and the vouchers so it's not necessarily a program where someone can sign up and just receive vouchers it is required that the education sessions occur just for the reasons that you stated kind of learning how to not only navigate your local grocery store or even convenience store or trading post but how to navigate your own kitchen or how to navigate going through recipes so a part of the healthy Navajo store initiative they have recipes that go along um, with what items are available at, uh, let's say, for instance, a Red Mesa Express store or a Bash's store or a trading post. I'm Andy Murphy, host, producer, and creator of the Toasted Sister podcast. Music was created for this podcast by C.W. Ione. His new album, Attack of the 64s, is out now. What you would recognize as the Toasted Sister intro song is on this album, and it's called St. Vite. Check it out on Bandcamp. That's cwayon.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening.